You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies, this is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Justice is Served here on Black Hollywood Live, where we're bringing you the full analysis on the legal stories that we think you should know about. My name is Chelsea Galicia and I am a workers' compensation attorney here in L.A. I am joined by two guest hosts, Shaka Smith and B.J. Abron. Shaka is an undergrad a graduate of Princeton University, went to law school in D.C., and then moved out to uh, L.A. to pursue acting and fitness modeling. But he has experience in natural gas law, health care law, public defender's office. He has a great broad range of perspectives, so thanks for being here. And also, B.J. Abron, who is straight out of Compton and straight out of law school, <laughs> our fresh uh, law school graduate, is here to give us his analysis on today's story. He also has experience in the Public Defender's Office and BET's Business and Legal Affairs. Yes, Thank you yes, so yes, much. Yes, of course. We have to straight away get to the big story of this week where Charlie Sheen has confirmed to the world that he is HIV positive. There are reports that he uh, has slept with about 200 women in the last couple of years. So this would be uh, within the four-year period that he has said that he has known about it. Perhaps there are more. And this obviously raises the question, can any of these women successfully sue him? Uh, so we've got two parts of this story. First, the uh, civil... No, I'm sorry. First, we're going to start with the criminal okay. um, charges that he could face. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the civil claims that he could potentially face. To my knowledge, as of this moment, there have been uh, there have not been any suits filed. But that you know, this news is really just about 24 hours old, so it's really too soon to tell whether any suits will come out. But I can only imagine that there will be at least uh, a couple. Could be criminal, could be civil. But let's just first now see what are uh, the, the laws when it comes to uh, criminal liability for HIV transmission. And we're going to focus it on California uh, because this is where we live, this is where Charlie Sheen lives, and where I imagine most of these incidences would have occurred. Right. So we've got misdemeanor and felony ways to right. convict somebody for tra uh, transmitting HIV. What's the lowdown, BJ? I mean, well, basically, I mean, like you said, we're going to focus on California, but uh, a number of states have enacted statutes um, for um, felonies and misdemeanor charges for these types of acts and conduct. Um, in particular, in California, under the California Health and Safety Code, um, there are two different standards, obviously one for a felony and one for misdemeanors. Also, uh, those that uh, encounter, those in which someone may have encountered HIV uh, via uh, sexual intercourse, as well as those who may have encountered it 
uh, via uh, blood, you know, giving blood or organs or those types of things. So in regards to the uh, federal, excuse me, the felony charges, uh, there are a number of elements that you obviously have to uh, account for. Those elements include uh, unprotected sex, meaning the, the person engaged in unprotected sex. They had, uh, they were HIV positive, and they knew that they were HIV positive. That's a big thing. They the have time. to know. That, that the knowing element is, is a huge thing, because if you don't know, obviously, um, you, you, you can't be prosecuted here. Right. Um, and, and that's for both, actually, for both um, felony and misdemeanor charges. Um, also, uh, you have to have not disclosed that information to your sexual partner, and you must have had intent. And so the intent element, again, and that knowledge element, um, those are two critical elements here. And for misdemeanors, you don't. it doesn't require the intent for you to be prosecuted. It also doesn't require for you to have engaged in unprotected sex. Right. You so just had to have, have known. Is that a strict um, knowledge requirement, or is that based on uh, whether or not, if you had reasonable anticipation that you have it if it I, I think it's people that actually have been tested and know, okay. which is why some people have come out against these laws to say right. that they actually discourage people from getting tested because then if they know, then they'll be held to the standard and as long as they sort of keep their head buried in the sand about it, then they can never be charged. So we're not looking at a... So so if you, if you have knowledge that you've had sex with several people that have HIV, um, do you, and, but you have not gotten tested yourself... No. Does that relieve you of the knowledge requirement? Or? It, it it does because you don't have actual knowledge that you actually no. have it. So and, I mean, and, and just to be clear, because you can have sex, sexual intercourse with others that have HIV and never contract the virus itself. Mm-hmm. So um, just the mere fact that you actually have had sexual intercourse with someone who you do know have had has been diagnosed with HIV does not create uh, or put you in a position where you actually are deemed to have that knowledge. Okay. Yeah. So. If you are convicted of the misdemeanor, uh, you face up to six months in jail in yeah. California, and the felony can be up to eight years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there aren't very many cases of it, but it, it does happen. Yeah. It does yeah. happen. All right, Chaka, now for the civil claims, um, for, for when people want money damages as a result of uh, learning this information or contracting the condition themselves. What do they have to prove? Well, you have a, um, a variety of civil claims, um, including fraud, sexual battery, negligent and in- intentional infliction of emotional distress, as well as wrongful transmission. Um, one of the most interesting things about wrongful transmission is that in California, where the courts have allowed those cases to continue, it's been with HIV and herpes, and more, it's been with unprotected sex. So I think that's an issue that we're going to have in this case is whether or not, um, I believe he claimed he only had unprotected sex with two, two of these women, whether or not they had knowledge, what precautions they did take. And I think w- when you come to sexual battery, um, sexual battery is about an, unwant- like an unwanted um, sexual relationship based on the fact that a material, um, a material fact was not disclosed. So, for instance, they're saying you're guilty of sexual battery because I would not have had sex with you had I known um, of your status. But what's interesting about this particular case is I think the changing face of HIV. Um, what is the risk to the person that you're exposing? And your knowledge of that risk is a central element in a lot of these um, these civil claims. And now if you're using protection, if you're maybe using one of the HIV drugs that keeps your um, your viral count to undetectable, yeah. as Charlie Sheen has maintained, yeah. um, that may actually 
relieve you of a lot of the duties. But this means and that people themselves are going to start playing doctor. They're going to say, well, I, I believe that my load is, is undetectable, and so therefore I now get to make the decision about whether I inform my sexual partner about my, my status. And that, I think, can get really dangerous if people are allowed to decide for themselves whether their condition is transmittable or not. Well, I think your, your doctor will let you know if you're um, if it's undetectable. So I think you'd have to still have medical proof. But then I saw that even if it's undetectable, it still could be transmittable. Yeah, so the, the risk is far lower. And so now is that risk being so low, does that now mean... You no longer have to disclose. Oh, dear God. I mean, if yes, I, I, would, I would hope. No matter what the, the risk is that somebody would, would have to share that with you. Uh, I, I mean, I guess this is a good case for, you know, always use a condom. And then I, just a refresher that it's, as far as I know, only the latex condoms that really prevent uh, against the spread of HIV and AIDS. But like things like lambskin do not, they might prevent pregnancy, but not... Uh, STDs, including HIV. So I think the question we'll see going forward is, if you have an undetectable viral load, if you're also using condoms, is it also still necessary to then, is the risk so low you don't need to disclose anymore? I think you definitely, I, th- yeah. I think we'll definitely see that that, um, will, that standard will remain, that you actually do need to disclose under those circumstances. Once you have that knowledge, once you have an understanding that you have a disease that can transmit to a life-ending uh, disorder to someone else, you definitely should be required. And it looks like in this case we'll probably see uh, something pled because already uh, two women that I know have come out to say that they have been sexually involved with Charlie Sheen since he knew he had it and then were not told. He, in the Matt Lauer interview yesterday, said that he has told everybody that he has been uh, sexually intimate with about his status. So, And he was there with his doctor to verify it was undetectable. So I think that's a legal issue they've already gone over, and uh, we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the Supreme Court Monday has come out with an interesting decision relating to excessive force used by police officers. Uh, this one was really interesting in light of the number of excessive force cases that we've seen, the reaction that's come out of that. And in this eight-to-one decision, the justices have said that the police officers are going to be immune, basically, from prosecution or liability for excessive force in certain cases. Um, Chaka, what are those certain cases that they're going to be basically allowed to get away scot-free with exhibiting excessive force. So they were referring to um, situations in which there's a chase, a chase occurring, which I'd imagine covers a lot of police situations. People try to run. Um, An officer recently, during a chase that lasted 25 miles on the highway, um, they put down spikes to stop this guy who they believed was also intoxicated at the time. And the officer decided to, against their commander's wishes, they were told to stand down decided to take a rifle to the overpass and shoot at this car with the intention of stopping it, but unfortunately also killed the driver. Um, the officer was told to stand down and to let the spikes, the, stru- the spikes that they were putting down to stop the car, let them work and see what they would do from there. However, the officer had been accused of not being proactive in the past, and after um, shooting at the car and killing the, um, the driver, made a comment saying, how's that for proactive? And so I think it's it's just a very slippery slope now if we're not looking at excessive force as long as it's a chase situation because there's so many instances in which an officer can claim that 
the situation was that of a chase. And then the Supreme Court put the standard right. as beyond debate. Which right. is unbelievable because leave it to lawyers and you can always debate anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so in what situation are we going to see excessive force used where it's beyond debate? And I, so I think it just really narrows the scope of um, liability for police officers and in this culture where we're very concerned about the use of force, especially right. when it comes to certain communities, um, I think this is very, very troublesome. And, and, and let me make this statement because obviously, and, and if you've watched my past shows here, you see that I'm definitely um, – uh, pro, let, let's put the leash on the police, right? Um, but in this particular circumstance, when you're talking about a chase, well, first of all, we need to figure out what the circumstances are um, that initiated the chase. For you know, first of all, but when we talk about the standard that they just that they set out that they laid out here for us, um, I think that standard uh, it, it, it depends on, it, like I said, it depends on the circumstances. Because now I, th- I know we touched bases on this earlier, but w- when you're talking about a supervisor giving you some orders or, or telling you to stand down a particular circumstance, is that supervisor at the scene? Does that supervisor see what you? see is that supervisor in in, in danger's eye you know so in a particular circumstance i'm not sure how much weight uh, a supervisor radioing telling you to stand down um will make a determination as to you know whether it's debatable or not if that's is that the standard yeah beyond 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 debate debate. and so to me i think the particular whatever the particulars are at the scene that will determine whether it's beyond debate now this particular officer yeah he said he was attempting to shoot and just stop the vehicle well obviously we have a question on how well he was trained with shooting in the first place if he was trying to stop stop the the video excuse me the vehicle but uh wounded and killed the driver that's a that's another problem but beyond debate i think it's something that definitely it's a wide scope but it's definitely something that should remain at the scene of the crime and not necessarily by what your superior is reporting. I thought this case was really interesting in light of this case that we covered last week about the police officers shooting into a car and killing a mm-hmm. six-year-old right. child. Mm-hmm. And we were all were outraged about that, and the police officers have been fired and charged criminally. Right. Uh, so I wonder now, does this undo any of the progress that we've made on holding police officers accountable for some really heinous acts that right. lead to the the death of of people and sometimes innocent people. And I think that absolutely takes that prior case out of the scope because now it's not beyond debate whether or not and see, their, I, their actions were justified. And I don't think so. I think it actually remains within the scope simply because of the context of what led to that police chase. These guys were following him for no reason at all. When they got there, there was no weapon. It was nothing. This is beyond debate. Are you talking about in the Supreme Court case? Or no, not the, the Supreme Court. The case from last yeah. from last week. Well, right. I think we're looking at... They've been chasing this guy for, what, 20, 25 miles? Right, and right? the one from the case on, the Supreme Court case in Texas yeah. Yeah, that decided this. They they put spikes down, and they're waiting for the spikes to work. So they, yes. they don't know if he's yeah. rolled over them yet. The officer's taking a shot from an overpass. He's not in any immediate danger. So if, if we're looking at a situation where they can shoot someone and that's not deemed excessive force, they were chasing him for 20 miles, they didn't let the spikes work, the commander told him to stand down, he's taking a shot where he's completely safe. That, to me... If that's not beyond debate, or or then many of the cases we've looked at are not beyond debate, as we've sat here and debated them ourselves. I, mean, I wonder if there were other cars around. Like, was this a rural rural road, or was this somewhere busy where this guy who was reportedly going up to like 110 miles an hour, perhaps drunk, could quickly hit somebody and kill somebody if they didn't stop him? 
you know, based on where he was located. So it raises a lot of questions, and it will raise questions about another case of excessive force that we have seen recently. This one we have the video on, um, and I I have not seen it because I've been trying to avoid it because I hear it is pretty brutal. Um, but we are going to show it to you now with the warning that it is pretty yes. brutal to my understanding, and then analyze what we think this new Supreme Court decision will have on this case. Go ahead and let's roll that video. And at that point there where he's subdued, that's excessive. Yeah. But he's still moving. He's but not dead. Of course he's moving. <laughs> I mean, he, even though he's moving, he doesn't seem to be... It's not a threat. Right. Threatening or, or hitting, striking the officers. And at this point, it's a little hard to see because of the lights. But... I know that this goes on yeah, for yeah. quite a while. And in, the first question for me that this raises is when is a chase over? Or when does a chase start? I mean, what if somebody, officers, you know, beat somebody up and they're like, well, this guy stole something from a store three days ago and we've been chasing him ever since. And do the officers say in this situation he was continuing to get up, he was still threatening us? Um, you know, a lot of times they deal with people on drugs that right. have kind of hu- superhuman strength at times. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... It, to me, this video, as horrendous as it is, is also debatable. So when you use a standard so broad as beyond debate, yeah. you pretty much sanction everything the police can do. I, I, I completely agree with your take on that standard. It, it is completely uh, – it's, it's way too broad. But I, I think in this particular case um, – I don't think that that is beyond debate. And, of course, yeah, he's moving, but I'm not sure how many of us will react if we're being beaten by two officers or two or anybody, for that matter, with two uh, batons. You're not going to stop moving until you're unconscious or until you are subdued, arrested. Now, I will say this, and if I'm correct from reading this report, I think um, later they said they found a weapon on him, um, if I'm not correct, if I'm not wrong. Now, the question is, no, and it was was a gun. he reaching I for believe a weapon? It was a gun. Was he... But my question is this: in, in terms of police policy and procedure, now is it is it uh, needed for you to continue to beat? In fact, is it more effective for you to continuously beat this guy? Because even if they just say they knew he had a gun, uh, I think it's more at risk. You taking those baton blows that he takes out a gun and shoots you, whether it's, it would diminish the risk if you arrested him. When you knocked him down the first time, you put his hands behind his back, you put him in a police car, you take that weapon. Well, I, right, I so why, to, to me, this this looked like it could have been over within 30 seconds of him and I, falling to the ground. And that everything else after that was excessive because they just should have arrested well, him. Well, any any movement he makes could be a reach for a gun. And so as an officer, until he is no longer moving, and I, I, he kept, he seemed to continue to move. So let me ask and you this. we also don't know, I think the courts like to defer to people on the scene, and they like to say, say, what was your assessment of the danger of the situation? And in the heat of the moment, we all react differently. So what I, my whole point is, that's enough to put this squarely within debate. But my thing so is, now, if I'm striking you with a baton across the face, mm-hmm. do you think your face is going to move? Yeah, my face, then, his hands were moving. Then there was no way that this guy could stop from moving because he was being stricken by two, not one, but two officers with billy clubs. Uh, no, I think 
Could you play possum, lay down flat, don't move at all, even while being hit? I think you could. It he might be a, against your natural instinct to do that. I mean, part. I would think yeah. the natural instinct would be curl up in a fetal position and, and cover he your was head. Moving. He wasn't striking. He was curling. He was moving. He was rolling. Uh, yeah. I think they have enough to say he could have been reaching for a weapon, and I think have, and I think that's a problem. A problem in the situation. This to me is excessive force. Absolutely excessive force. But it's very debatable. Right. So now I look at this differently than I would have before this case that came down on Monday. To me, this would have been clear cut, similar to like Rodney King. But then now with the Supreme Court decision, I now uh, am a little more hesitant to declare that the courts are going to say this is excessive force. Yeah. Yeah. So that and that's that's what really worrisome right now. Almost anything's debatable. It's America, you know. So (laughs) right. So I we I guess we're we're gonna see what happens in this case and if this Supreme Court case is used to help officers deflect liability. And I think it's just important for people to be aware of it because the media didn't cover this. We we covered riots, we covered Ferguson, we covered a lot of these um, ideas of civil unrest. But this a case like this actually goes to the heart You're of it, absolutely and no right. one's talking about You're it. Absolutely, so and, and, and I think aware. that, and that's what we've seen over decades. Actually, yeah. the these uh, quiet legislations or legislative pieces being pushed into you know into action, and no one knows about it until it's time and, to face it, and you know, in a trial. And it's important to note with an eight-one decision, so that that it's is crazy. even more troublesome that they overwhelmingly went with this idea of throwing excessive force in the realm of beyond debate in order for it to be considered so. Yeah, I, I can't I can't believe it, it was only uh, uh, Sonia Sotomayor who yeah. dissented saying that, you know, the Fourth Amendment doesn't allow us to shoot first and think later. Right. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. Um, all right, now turning to another Bill Cosby case, but instead of him being... Uh, charged or sued. This time, it's his attorney being sued for comments that he posted on uh, Bill Cosby's website. So this is one of Bill Cosby's longtime attorneys, John Schmidt, who is being sued by two women. These two women were accusers of sexual assault against Bill, Bill Cosby, and this attorney posted something on his website, and now the women are suing this attorney over those comments. Basically, those comments call the women liars, not so much in those words, but just say that uh, decade-old discredited allegations against Mr. Cosby have resurfaced, and the fact that they're being repeated doesn't make them true. Mr. Cosby does not intend to dignify these allegations with any comment. He would like to thank all of his fans for their support and assure them that at age 77, he is doing his best work. There will be no further statement from Mr. Cosby or any of his representatives. So that posting has gotten this attorney sued, which raises the question of when can an attorney be sued for something that they say on behalf of their client? Who's going to start us off on this? Well, okay. I mean, basically, there are a number of questions. First, and I'll definitely answer that question that can be asked here, and, and it takes you to the realm of uh, professional responsibility and extrajudicial statements. It takes you to the realm of defamation, which we'll talk about. But yes, of course, attorneys can be sued just like anyone else. So we definitely should should state that first. My first, when I saw this, I I remember that there is some general immunity that attorneys right. have. Right. So that's sort of the the first thing that comes to mind, and I think that's the first step in the analysis right. is to assume that attorneys have this 
immunity, this almost well, absolute immunity from civil liability for statements or conduct that may injure or offend or just piss off an opposing party uh, like the uh, accusers. Because this is something that's come way back when we were like colonists. We brought this from England, this whole idea of this adversarial system where your attorney is your biggest advocate and they can pretty much do or say anything right. to, you know, to to get you off, to, to, to defend you and to, to uh, speak well uh, for their client and try and speak out against what accusers might be saying. So that's where the analysis begins, I think. And so for when I first saw this, I thought this is for sure going to be an uphill battle for these women because attorneys can generally say virtually anything as long as it's related to a present claim or charge, right? Just to be clear, and that uh, that, uh, immunity that you speak of is what we call litigation privilege, Mm -hmm. which uh, essentially, if you're making statements or engaging in any activity, I should state, in anticipation or in preparation for litigation, that's where that that um, that privilege comes into play. Now, that privilege is not always absolute. Sometimes it's a qualified privilege, and it depends on the jurisdiction that you're in. It depends on the facts uh, of the particular case. So for me, I thought this was... Open and shut, there's really no chance. But then Chaco brought to light some cases that I had not seen where somebody successfully sued an attorney for defamatory statements. Yeah, I mean, the problem here is that that litigation privilege was so you could defend your client zealously in the court of law, Mm -hmm. whether it was in deposition or it was through making comments to the other um, opposing side's counsel. Um, I think we've gotten to a state where a lot of attorneys are acting as publicists for their clients, and that's where... Um, they kind of headed into murky waters. We see a case, Rothman v. Jackson. Jackson as in? Um, Michael Jackson, yeah. yes. And so Rothman was an attorney for one of um, Michael Jackson's accusers. And Michael Jackson's attorneys at the time came out and said that Rothman was lying and he wanted to extort money from Mr. Jackson on behalf of his, on behalf of his clients. So Rothman then sued Michael Jackson for defamation. And he he prevailed because the court found that the comments regarding Mr. Rothman were not tied to the litigation. Even though they were about litigation, they weren't tied to litigation because they were in public and they made no material difference regarding the litigation. So here with Mr. Cosby, um, they're making statements that refer to or essentially call these women liars, but it does nothing but to serve the public. It's not helping with the litigation. It's not furthering the litigation. There's no nexus that makes it necessary for it to be a part of litigation. I mean, I guess he. it could be argued that he was trying to keep the jury pool from being tainted. So yes. does that rise to the level of being associated enough with the claim that it would be covered? And, yeah, in Rothman v. Jackson, the, the court said no. And, see, and, and that's where I differ with uh, the Jackson case in that matter. Not necessarily with you, yeah. but the decision there, because clearly this is related. These statements are related to the action. But, I mean, he, he's doing nothing but refuting, in fact, the allegation. Now, I think that there's a different um, – now, there's a question as to whether these statements should be allowed by an attorney for professional responsibility practices, but in terms of a civil liability, I don't think that these statements can be called um, not relevant or, excuse me, not not related, not related to well, the particular matter. Well, in Rothman v. Jackson, the court just found that relation has to be necessary to the litigation. So, for instance, if you're making a statement that we're looking for the real killers, now, if a real killer was to, to show up, then that would materially affect the litigation. Right. 
this does nothing to materially affect it. You're, you know, there's no extra filing for evidence based on these statements to the press. But I think it does materially affect it because um, any trial attorney will tell you that the most important thing in relation to any trial is the jury. And so any statement made to the jury is very important, and whether you're in court, whether you're out of court. In fact, that's why we have standards where you can't make extrajudicial statements uh, exactly. because it has an because it in fact has an effect well, on a jury. And I think this falls in that purview. They're saying you're having an effect on the jury that's undue because it's got nothing to do with mm. litigation. So, that, so basically, you're doing this. You're almost politicizing this case. And you know, one attorney who may be prominent is not going to make a statement to the press that would get actual feedback and press and media attention, whereas another attorney might not get that same opportunity, right. and now you're doing a press battle over a, a legal situation. Right. And I think they, the courts are kind of loath to um, let that carry on. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. I, I do. I, I'm sorry. Uh, and then Come just the last point to note, however, though, I think these women may fall short of their claim. So while under Rothman v. Jackson, I think they had a strong claim. The statement didn't actually identify these women. Correct. The statement was very, and I think probably on purpose, the statement said these old allegations are coming up again and, right. you know, they'll, they'll be discredited again. And so were they referring to the media? Were they referring to different articles? Were they uh, – no one could necessarily garner without extra information or extra research on their own part to find out who these women were and so whether or not they, they had alleged any damages based on any material injury to these particular women. Yeah. Right. I don't, I don't know who – the two women are Tamara Green and Barbara Bowman and I don't, under, I, I don't know who the attorney is that's either representing one or both of them. But either this attorney is kind of in the dark about the attorney privilege, the litigation privilege, or is brilliant and knows some really small caveat, some exception that's going to win this because I don't see how they're going to win. Well, I mean, of all the women that had accused Cosby, we're talking about these two women today, so maybe it's a move on their part to gain more publicity, book deals, magazines, yeah. interviews, and, you know, a lot of people have motivations yeah. for... So right now we are pending another uh, deposition for Bill Cosby. Uh, the attorney for Janice Dickinson, Lisa Bloom, is trying to take his deposition, and his attorneys have put um, many, many motions uh, forward to stop it. So, so far to this date, they're being successful, but probably just successful in delaying it, probably not in preventing it from happening. So when it does and anything that comes out of that, we will surely bring that to you. Moving on to a problem that most of us will probably never have. Steve Harvey is being sued by a jet company for backing out on a, a deal to sort of renovate, customize a jet so that Steve Harvey could lease it to the tune of $97,000 a month. So Steve Harvey uh, saw this plain Gulfstream jet that he uh, wanted to be altered, change the number of seats, the uh, interior design he wanted to change out. And so he agreed to pay $400,000 for this customization. Uh, and then about halfway through when $200,000 worth of work had been done that Steve Harvey had actually paid for, Steve Harvey changed his mind and said, never mind, I don't want to do this, backs out of this deal. And so now this company, the, the jet company, is suing him, even though they acknowledge that there was no written contract. So under what circumstances... Uh, this I love this story because it reads like a, a fact pattern from a first-year <laughs> contracts law. Under what circumstances can a person successfully sue another for... Uh, breaking a deal that was never signed. Well, I mean, the first thing you learn in law school, well, 
after the Harry Hand case is the fact that uh, oral promise is just as good as a written promise. Okay, It's better to have things in writing. It's easier, but that doesn't mean that you can't uphold a deal or get damages exactly. for a broken deal if it wasn't in writing. Exactly. So, I mean, in this particular circumstance, clearly, uh, if, if he paid him 200000 already for the job, there will be some evidence that a contract that existed, right? And so those are the circumstantial things that you're bringing to play and, and to prove the case and that there was, in fact, a, a, a contract. I'm not even sure if uh, Steve Harvey has disputed the fact that there was a contract in any way, shape, or form, though. I have not seen any response. So what are the theories of contract that this company can can use against Steve Harvey to uh, to sue him successfully even though there was no written contract? Yeah, well, primarily you're going to be looking at promissory estoppel. And you're going to have a four-prong test, essentially. One is a clear promise. Did you make a promise that was clear, absolute? Number two, was there reliance on that promise? Did they go ahead and undertake these... Um, Customization, these actions exactly. based on that promise. And number three, was that foreseeable that they would? And, uh, of course, it certainly was. And number four, there's injury. And if they've sunk in $400,000 into the renovations, then um, there is an injury. I, in fact, I think he's lucky that they're only going um, for the price of the renovations and not the $97,000 a month that he said he would lease the plane for. But my guess is they believe the plane is viable enough to lease to somebody else for that money so they don't have to go to him for it. So in a situation where you have an ongoing promise, um, such as the one Mr. Harvey seems to have made, if you have a duty to mitigate your damages, and that's an important part to note, so that's why they're probably not coming after him for the monthly fee that he right. promised to pay. Right. right. Okay, so under this quasi-contract theory is probably where this company will be successful. Business Aircraft Leasing, Inc. is the one who's suing Steve Steve Harvey. So uh, I, I think Steve Harvey better, I don't know, start leasing this jet for $97,000 or just pay this 200000 and try and find some other rich buddy who can take over that lease. Um, good luck to him. <laughs> All right, our last story today is about a man who goes to a restaurant, like many of us do, orders his food, like many of us do, and gets asked to prepay his meal, like has never been done that I know of. But this did happen to a man in the state of Washington. Uh, BJ, why did that happen? Oh, I mean, why did it happen? I can't say for sure. The restaurant alleges that um, the reason why they actually engaged in that behavior at that time was because they have had a number of customers who came into a particular area. I guess there's two different areas in a diner or in a restaurant. And in one area, they've had a number of people, and it didn't specify any ethnicity or anything like that. It just say, stated that there were a number of people who had uh, effect, who, who didn't pay. Dine and ditched. They dine and ditched, right? Mm -hmm. They dine and ran. So, um, and, and they wanted to implement something. However, the problem with that is that um, this man, after he asked questions about, you know, why he had to pay, I guess it was two circumstances. He, he purchased something, then he purchased a drink later on. And when they asked him the second time, that's when he, you know, decided to be more proactive and asked, why am I you're, you're being, being required to pay? Yeah. And, and the waitress, who they haven't stated her name yet, um, she stated to the, to the guy that, you know what, I, my boss is here. My boss is enforcing me and making me to do this. And I think that this is actually discrimination, right. which is occurring here. And right. so you have to wonder uh, what people were selected 
for this person because because if if this wasn't the first guy and it happened before and it was other people, you know, for the waitress to say it's discrimination, clearly she's only seen that it's been happening to one per- particular type so of person. So this happened to a, a gentleman named Brian Eason. He's a real estate agent who right. also serves as a deputy with right. the county sheriff's office in Vancouver, Washington. He is black, and I believe that the the waitress told him, I think this is a racist implementation of this sort of policy. Right. And he went back and asked some white patrons if they had to prepay, and they said they didn't have to prepay. So So now this gentleman sort of racked his consciousness and conscience and and, uh, came to figure out, should I file a lawsuit here? And he ultimately decided to file a discrimination claim for $100,000 against the restaurant. Right. Uh, what are your thoughts on his chances of success? I mean, it, it's all relative. And if you bring in that point that Shaka just made where he went back to the restaurant and he asked those, uh, the, the, the white clients, uh, whether they had actually had been, you know, forced to pay in advance, um, they said no. Well, there's also a question of what area were they in in the restaurant? Because if they were in that other area, um, then that that the restaurant states, you know, we just let people just, you know, we they order and they pay here, then it's okay. That would fall in line with their story, and you might have more of a viable defense there in that circumstance. But I think we need a little bit more facts here to do, to really assess the viability of this matter and this lawsuit. And it's important to note that he did say it, he racked his brains, sleepless nights, so you already see him racking up the intentional infliction of emotional distress yeah. or negligent. Right, and, trying to show damages. Yeah, whenever you see that, in a, just to the viewers and listeners, whenever you see that in a news article that someone's lost sleep and they're, they're really emotionally agonized, Distraught. usually that's the, the, their, um, their foundation for their legal case for um, emotional distress. Yeah. All right. Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much for your thoughts, opinions, and analysis today. That brings us to the end of today's episode of Justice is Served. Thank you so much for being with us. If you have any comments or questions, please tweet us, me, at Chelsea Galicia. BJ at JustBJ Abron. And at Shaka Strong. See you next week, guys. Yes, Yes, we will be here next week, Thanksgiving week. From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. Hollywood Redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.